Alright, so we are going to look at 1 John. Uh, the reason I chose that was we have not covered this yet. We've covered a lot of different books. Uh, and the way we're going to do this is actually we're going to go through and talk a little bit about, I'm going to give a little bit of an intro to the book of 1 John. We'll talk uh, about a number of things about the author. Uh, we'll talk about possibly where it was written and a number of other things. And I'll probably take a couple of sidetracks because as I was going through this, uh, sometimes I just jot stuff down that's in my mind if I know that it reaches over to a different spot of Scripture. So let me go ahead and give you guys just real quick a synopsis of the book. And I can't tell you for a fact all of the problems that the author was dealing with, but I can tell you for a fact of some of them because of what he wrote about. So based on that, here are the issues that are addressed in the book. Now, these are important because as we go forward, some of what I might touch on, and I'm going to touch a little bit on, I don't like the term. How many of you guys know, have heard the term church fathers? I'm going to touch on them for just a second. Uh, I don't really care for the term. Uh, these were guys who wrote letters. Uh, they've been predominantly looked at as being having some historical uh, evidence or accuracy, or at least giving us some insight to the church. Uh, but we can't rely on those as far as what we believe regarding the Bible, but they do give us some information. So I will touch on those for a minute. But here's the issues he addressed. Some believe that they had a deeper understanding or a knowledge of the truths of God, and they were thereby superior. Who knows what that was? The Gnostics. So you had people who were, that were Gnostic, meaning the knowing ones. They were so smart. How many of you guys know people who... Uh, who think they know more than somebody else because they have some type of a revelation. That was the idea of the Gnostics. Uh, does anybody know one of the key aspects of the Gnostics? What did they think regarding the body? It was what? Was the body good or evil? It was evil by nature. So that caused some serious issues because when Christ took upon him human form, they then struggled with the idea of how could he be in a human body when human bodies are evil, lust of the flesh and desire and all that. And so they struggled with a lot of Jesus in, in the flesh. And so they came up with some really weird teachings, okay? Uh, you could even go so far as to, well, the Catholic Church. No, this is in my notes. What does the Catholic Church, Church teach about Jesus? He was born of a what kind of conception? The Immaculate Conception, right? Uh, they teach that Mary never had relations. She had gotten pregnant, and therefore, and Jesus was born. So what do you not have if, if she never had any type of intimate relations? You don't pass what? Inherited sin, right? So that's, that's one of these things that kind of came up because really of the problems we're going to look at. But anyway, so you, he was dealing with Gnostics. You had problems within the church. Some people denied that Jesus was the Christ. Is that, have we got that kind of stuff going on today? Certainly we do. We have people that deny that Jesus was the Christ. This one ties in with the teachings by the Gnostics. Some of these people denied that Jesus actually came in the flesh. That's important to note uh, as we look at the author and as we look at some of the, actually the very first couple of verses of the, of the book. You had some false teachers apparently who were claiming a separation from any sin. Can you imagine someone saying that you could do whatever you want and not sin? What would we call that today? What group teaches that? 
Once saved, always saved, right? Once you've been saved, there's nothing that could, that could snatch you out of the hand of God, they would tell you. So many of the things that we're looking at in the first century, we have today that's just under a different name. You had those that were following the way of the world. He addresses that. Is that a problem today? Certainly still a problem. You had those uh, that were teaching the commandments of God were not binding. Is that a problem today? We have the exact same issues going on today, right? Uh, well, those aren't really commandments. Those are more suggestions. I had a gentleman I went to school with who said, uh, when you talk about the requirements for elders, he said, those aren't, those aren't verbatim requirements. Those are really just suggestions. I'm like, no, those are requirements. It literally says that they must possess these things, right? So we have the same issue going on today. Uh, the author was dealing with that. Some believe that they could sin and remain in fellowship with God or brethren. Can you guys imagine if a congregation went off on their, on their own thing and was teaching all kinds of craziness and then thought that you had people within a, another congregation who taught the truth and they thought they could fellowship that? Well, you've got the same problems going on here. You think they can go do whatever they want. They can still be in fellowship with God uh, and they could still fellowship brethren, even if those brethren were in error and vice versa, right? They didn't see an issue with that. Let me point something else out. Whenever you have congregations that have issues, and I, I don't know two other terms to use, so let's use these terms. You have one that is biblically sound, and you have one that is not biblically sound. Which side is it that always thinks it's not a big deal and we can still fellowship? It's the not biblically sound, right? right? It's the liberal ones. They're like, you guys are... You guys really are just going overboard with this. You're a bunch of legalists is what you are, right? And so this isn't an issue. This should not be an issue. We're willing to, we're willing to fellowship you even though you're not willing to fellowship us, right? So who are they putting the blame on? The ones trying to do right. He's dealing with the same kind of problems. He also has to deal with the fact that false teachers have no real love for God nor the brethren. Because if they did, they wouldn't be doing what they're doing, Right? So that is a synopsis, really quickly, of the first book of John. All right. Let me point this out as we go here, and I'm sure everybody knows this, but we're looking at the authors of the New Testament. Why? Well, we're going to talk about the author of 1 John, so who was he? Well, you'll notice as you look here, you have John, who was an apostle, right? You've got the apostles that wrote, and then you have Luke and John Mark, uh, Luke wrote the book of Luke and Acts, and then you've got the book of John, written by John Mark, and then you have James and Jude. So we are talking about John. Now, I'm going to get to that. How can we say that John wrote this when his name's never mentioned anywhere? All right, so let's talk a little bit about that. Authorship of the Bible, uh, I mean, of, the, of uh, the book of 1 John in the Bible. How do we know that this was written by John? Well, that's a good question. And we could literally do a class for a month. We could meet every once a week or twice a week for a month and still never cover this topic. So we're going to just do it real quick. When you go back and look at 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John, all of those are anonymous books. The one of, or probably the best method, it's not actually the only method. I'm going to mention the second one here, which is just equally as important. One of the best methods which give the most weight in determining the authorship is to study the tradition of the church history. I, remember, I told you I was going to talk about church fathers a little bit, even though I don't like that term, and even though we cannot rely on 
their uh, writings as uh, being authoritative. But we can go back and look at the authors from church history, uh, and we can look at their, at their writings, and we can tell what the church had accepted as inspired books. We can see that all the way back from the first century. Now, the other way is this. We can look at the internal evidence of the book itself, and if we have other books where we know who they were written by, uh, we can look at that book and see if there's similar writing style, uh, similar phraseology. There's a bunch of things that we can look at. Okay, We can also look at who they traveled with, and there's a bunch of things we could look at. But if you go back and look at uh, the recorded church history, it reveals an almost universally accepted belief that the author of these epistles was John the Apostle. Now, I don't have time to go back and, and discuss it, and I didn't put any of it in my notes. Has anybody got their Bible already open to 1 John? What does it say at the very top of yours, Jerry? First letter of John. Where do you think they... Do you, where do you think that came from? Do you think that came from Tyndale Publishing? Where do you think that was recorded at? Who copied all the letters at this time when they went around? Initially. Scribes did it later. Initially, when you got your first letter that was sent to a congregation, what, what do we know that they did with that letter? They copied it and they sent it to another congregation. So what would they put at the top here? This is a letter from John the Apostle. And later we know that the scribes then, which took great care, they continued copying the documents that they had. So all the way from the very beginning of the copying of these letters, they would have written at the top, and the scribes just continued to write it. The very, the very front there where it says the letter of uh, 1 John or the epistle of 1 John or whatever you've got worded in it, that's not inspired. It's simply giving a description of who wrote the book. The inspiration starts there within the first verse. Does that make sense? Right? We also had notes that would have been written by the scribes, oftentimes out in the side margins. Anybody here have a, a wide margin Bible? You guys, I don't have a scruple about writing in my Bible. I write all over it. Does anybody in here have a scruple? Not a problem with it if you do. Some people think it's so holy you can't write in your Bible, right? Well, the scribes didn't think that way because they would oftentimes put notes over in the side. Uh, that even caused some issues a couple of times. We won't have time to discuss that. But we can go back and look at uh, not only the original documents or the fragments where we can see stuff was written like that, but we know that this was accepted as an authoritative letter, okay? And it was assigned to John the Apostle. Do we have other information that would tell us that this was John? Well, Papias of Hierapolis, he referred to an epistle by John. Now, if you take away 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John, do you have an epistle written by John? If you took those away, you wouldn't. You'd have the book of Revelation, and you'd have his gospel, but there wouldn't be an epistle. He says there's an epistle by him, all right? Irenaeus, Clement of Alexandria, Tertullian, and Origen, all called church fathers due to their early historical writings, they all assigned the book to John. Now you're saying, well, so far you've got people who could have heard things and they wrote it down, and they could be wrong, and they could have been. But two of John's direct pupils, Polycarp being one who died around 155 A.D., and Papias, they quote from John in their writings and they attribute it to their teacher. 
These are eyewitness accounts where they have historically said, and it was known that they were taught directly by John, and they quote from his letters and say, this is from John. All right? So there's another way of how we can determine who wrote the book. So we could go back and look at all that different evidence. We don't really have time, and nor, nor do you probably want to listen to me talk about it. But from all that evidence, we can, we can conclude by the end of really the first, the second century, John was being cited as the authoritative uh, writer of this epistle. Okay? The evidence is sufficient to show that from the very early times, these epistles were not only treated as Scripture... Why were they considered as Scripture? They were written by an apostle, right? They were, they were treated as Scripture, but they were assumed to be written by the Apostle John in spite of the fact that there was no claim to this effect made by the writer himself. So he doesn't open up the letter and say, hey, this is John, this is John writing. He didn't do that. You have some letters where that, they start off and they acknowledge exactly who they are. He did not. However, we have tons of other evidence that allows us to know who wrote the epistle. All right, let's talk a little bit about John's background. And we are going to probably take a little bit of a detour here. Uh, I didn't really know who was going to be in the audience, and we've covered it, so we may not cover it in as great a detail. Uh, I was actually hoping maybe another person was going to be here, and I don't see him, so we may not cover it in quite as much detail. John's background. Anybody know who John hung around with quite a bit? You got a one, you got a one eleventh chance of being right. <laughs> he was an apostle. He was a close associate and friend of Simon Peter. The two are mentioned together both in the Gospels and the Book of Acts. All right, they suffered imprisonment together in Jerusalem following the healing of the lame man at the gate of the temple, Acts four three, and together they went to Samaria to give the Holy Spirit to the converts of Philip. Now, I am going to take a little sidetrack here just for a second. This doesn't have to do with 1 John, but I was mentioning, had a conversation today at, at, the church, or at the work, and uh, the lady was talking about, I won't go into a lot of detail, but she was talking about how she was aggravated that she, she works two full-time jobs, and she said, you know, our preacher, he takes all of our money, uh, and we don't, we don't do anything to share the gospel, but he drives a nice car, and I'm really angry about giving my 10%. And I said... You know, the Bible doesn't teach that anywhere. And she said, well, I've been, I was told that it, it, it says 10%. And I said, yeah, I was told that too. Did you ever ask him to show it to you? And she said, well, no. I bring this up because sometimes we're told things and we believe them and we never go back and look at them. If you could speak to John, who was a good friend of Peter, and if you could ask him to talk for just a few minutes about the Holy Spirit... And, and guys, for all the people that are around us today, what would you say is probably the most misunderstood topic regarding the Bible? Holy Spirit, right? I haven't preached on it in quite a while. That is our number one watched sermon on our YouTube page, the Holy Spirit. Why? Because people don't understand it. But if you could ask John, who was a friend of Peter, to talk a little bit about the Holy Spirit, uh, he wouldn't need a Bible. He could just quote it for you. But I think he would go over to Acts 2.38. Let's go over there for just a second. We're going to listen to Peter, but then we're going to actually see where Peter and John are together. Let's go over to Acts 2.38. I love to hear the pages turn. It's a shame. What time do I got to quit? <laughs> <laughs> Acts 
Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, how many of you guys have talked with somebody who said, as soon as you get baptized, you get the Holy Spirit, right? How many of you guys have ever heard someone say that? I hear it all the time. Uh, people are really confused about it. So let's go ahead and let's turn on over. You'll notice here, Acts 8. Let's go on over to verse 13. And let me say this as you're turning there. Do I believe that what Peter said here is true? Well, absolutely I do. But I also understand that Peter is talking to people in the first century. And guess who they had in their presence that we do not? They had apostles in their presence, right? These people in the crowd. They got apostles standing there. So when Peter said, if you'll repent and be baptized, you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And let me correct this. In the Greek, it does not say the gift of the Holy Spirit. It says the Holy Spirit's gift. It is showing possession. It would be like, this is, the, this is the watch of Sean. It's Sean's watch, right? But in the Greek, it would say this is the watch of Sean. It simply shows possession. So what he says specifically in Acts 2.38 is, um, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the Holy Spirit's gift. All right, now remember that. So let's go on over to Acts chapter 8. Now let's follow along starting there in verse 13. Verse 13. Now, you guys remember Simon the sorcerer? I wish we had, I wish we had like a couple hours today so we could go back and spend a lot of time on this. Uh, starting in verse 13. Then Simon himself believed also. And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and wandered, beholding the miracles and signs which were done. How many of you guys, before I go any further, think that he is actually a Christian right now? He's obeyed the gospel and been baptized. He is a Christian. What's one of the most common arguments you'll hear when you start going to this account? Well, he sinned right there. And they'll say, well, it's because he didn't truly, he's not really a Christian yet. Yes, he is. He is. He's a Christian. Verse 14. So he's actually seeing Philip. He said, continued with Philip. Notice this. And he wandered, beholding the miracles and signs which were done. So Philip could do miracles. We're going to learn about how he could do miracles, but we're going to learn something else regarding the Holy Spirit. Verse 13, and you're going to see a little something about Simon. Then Simon, or sorry, verse 14. When the apostles which were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent unto them Peter and John. All right, so here's the author of 1 John that we're talking about. He's hanging out with Peter. He could tell us a bunch of stuff about the Holy Spirit. So let's notice what we learn. Verse 15, who... When they were come down, who are we talking about? Well, we're talking about Peter and John. Prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Oh, now wait a minute. Doesn't that cause an issue for people today who teach that you should have the Holy Spirit? It, it should. They say, well, as soon as you get baptized, you get the Holy Spirit. We've got people here that are baptized. They're not. So John would say, okay, you guys aren't quite understanding this. It says, verse 16, For as yet he was fallen upon none of them, only they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Notice this, verse 17. Then laid they their hands on them. Who's the they? That's the apostles. And they received the Holy Spirit. All right, now, guys, I'm going to show you. When he says they received the Holy Spirit, we're talking about a gift. Okay, we're actually going to see that here in just a couple of verses. The gift of the Holy Spirit here is called receiving the Holy Spirit. Verse uh, 17, then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. 
And when Simon saw that through laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money. Let me pause again before we go on. What did he see them doing? He saw the apostles laying hands on them, and then he saw that they were given this Holy Spirit. Now you may say, I still don't understand what the Holy Spirit is that he was giving. We're going to notice it here in a second. But he offers them money to do this ability. Here's one of the things we know right off the bat. The only way you could have the Holy Spirit, as shown here, was from the laying on of what? An apostle's hands, right? Let's keep going. Verse 19. He says, saying, Give me also this power that on whomsoever I lay hands... Let me pause again. So the apostles had the power to lay hands on someone. Why? He goes on, that he may receive the Holy Spirit. He offers them money that they give him the same power that they have to touch someone and give them the Holy Spirit. Notice verse 20. But Peter said unto him, Thy money perish with thee, because thou hast thought that the gift of God, or that actually should be rendered, that God's gift may be purchased with money. The gift of the Holy Spirit, as we see, or the receiving of the Holy Spirit, only came through by the laying on of the apostles' hands. It's also called the gift of God. So the Holy Spirit's gift is God's gift. And then we could go over to 1 Corinthians, and we could look at the actual gifts that were given by the laying on of the apostles' hands. Uh, I'll actually mention it here in a little bit, but we'll see where Paul had the ability to actually give somebody a gift by the laying on of hands. Not only that, well, well, we'll wait till we get there here in a minute. So anyways, John would have been able to clear all of this up. He was an apostle. He was there. He had full understanding. And as you saw in this account, Peter and John came down, and they literally, to those who had been baptized but did not have the Holy Spirit, they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Why could he do that? Well, he was an apostle. And that's the person who writes this letter. He's one of, oh, I'm going to touch on this for a minute. I wish we could spend a lot of time on this. He's one of the pillars of the church in Jerusalem on the occasion of Paul's visit there, recorded in Galatians 2, 1 and following. And he assisted in settling the controversy over circumcision, which was the purpose of the conference mentioned in Acts 15. Now, most of you, all you guys all remember that, right? I'm going to touch on that here in a minute, even though it's just interesting information. But... Even though we know John wrote five different books of the New Testament, we've got the Gospel according to John, we have the, the uh, first epistle of John, the second epistle of John, the third epistle of John, and we have the book of Revelation, which is about one-fifth of our entire New Testament. It's interesting that his name is only mentioned in the books of the Gospel about 20 times, and half of these include no more than just a mere mention of his name. How many of you guys would be offended if your name was only mentioned once in the Bible? I'd be thrilled, right? Wouldn't you be walking around showing everybody, look, check this out, my name, my name's right there. Of course, you'd always have the down player who's like, it's only mentioned once in there, right? Yeah, well, John's is only mentioned about 20 times, right? But we're going to learn just how great John was. So you've always got the naysayer, right? So it's only mentioned once. I'd be, I'd be thrilled with just that. All right, where was it written? That's a good question. Well, Polycarp, who was a student under John, stated that uh, he spent a number of years, that John did, near the end of his life at Ephesus in Asia, Asia Minor, and therefore many people believe 
that it was actually written there in Ephesus. Was it written there in Ephesus? I have no idea. And neither does any of the other scholars out there. All right? Some will say, well, I think it was written in Ephesus. And some will say, well, I don't think it was written there. I think it was written at a different time, much later time, and he wasn't there. So we don't know. We don't have the information. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. And I'm going to touch on that point again here in just a second. It doesn't matter. It's not a matter of salvation. That's why when I give you a little bit of this information here in a minute, I'm going to say all of what I just told you really doesn't matter. When was it written? Well, we already know where it was written. Well, actually, we don't. But we know it was written somewhere. So we also know it was written at some time. But we don't really know when it was written. Now, if you go back and look up the scholars, I use that word loosely sometimes, here's what you'll find. They are divided on the date. Many believe it was, well, let me refer. Let me change that. Some believe it was written between A.D. 50 through 69, while many others believe A.D. 85 to 95. And I would go so far as to say the primary group probably say A.D. 85 to 95. They usually attribute it very late in his life. But here's what's interesting as I began to go back and look. I wondered why they dated it that way. And what I found was is that almost all the people who dated the first book of, or the, the epistle here, the first epistle of John, Almost all the people that dated it, dated it about the same time that they believed the Gospel of John was written, but they actually disagree on the date of when John was written. So why do we have two different camps? Well, they can't agree on when John was written, and they usually kind of attribute this close to it, it seems like, from all the scholars I looked at, and so they don't agree on when this, was, when this one was written. You may say, well, what, when do you think it was written, Sean? Well, it doesn't really matter what I think. Uh, I'll, give, I'll just mention a couple things and we'll move on. If you're going to take the synopsis of, well, it was written close to the same time he wrote the book of John, I would point this out, and some would say, well, that's not a big deal. You look at John 5.2, it mentions the Bethesda pool still existing. He literally says there's a pool in Jerusalem. He's talking about it existing. If when he wrote John 5.2, that pool still existed, when do we know this was prior to? A.D. 70, right? What happened in A.D. 70? The Romans came in, they surrounded them. What did they do to Jerusalem? They lit, they lit that thing on fire, didn't they? They burned it to the ground. So if the pool still existed, I know John was written before A.D. 70. Does that tell me when 1 John was written? No, but there is another thing that's interesting. 1 John 1.1 1, 1, and 2 John 1, 7, and we already showed this when I showed you a synopsis of the things he wrote about. Remember we talked about how he was writing about Gnosticism and refuting it? 1 John 1, 1 and, John 2, 1, uh, and 2 John 1, 7 refute the doctrine of Serenthus. Now, if you look this guy up, we actually know quite a bit about him. There's historical writings about this guy. He was a docetist, which is actually an early form of Gnosticism. What were they teaching? Well, that Jesus was here in the flesh up until he got baptized, but as soon as he got baptized, he was no longer in the flesh, he was spiritual. Remember, Gnostics thought the body was evil, right? So they had to come up with it. So anyway, there's this guy, and his name is Serenthus, and he is known uh, by, he was written about by Irenaeus and Epiphanes to have caused all kinds of problems for the apostles. Starting as early as 50 AD, he was a Judaizer and a Gnostic, and they go on and say that not only was he the cause of the dispute over circumcision, and they talk about him, guess where he lived? 
close to Galatia. They then go on and say in their writings that he's actually the reason for the entire council at Jerusalem. Now, do I know if any of that's true? No, I don't. It's an interesting fact that kind of ties in with some other stuff. And it might make me think that it, this was written a little bit earlier. But here's the thing, I don't know. And nobody else does either. So go back and do your research and choose your date as it's not a matter of fellowship and or salvation. The same thing, how many of you guys have seen people fighting over the book of Revelation? I think it was written prior to AD 70. I think it was written about AD 95, right? I have read the, I've read them. I've seen the evidence. We studied it in school. I'd say most of the guys that I studied under believed AD 95. I, I, I believe that because that's what I was told to believe until I went back and did some research. Now, I don't really necessarily believe that that's the case. I think there's evidence that might point otherwise. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't sit and argue it with anybody because it doesn't matter. So where was it written? I'm not sure. When was it written? I, I don't know. And does it matter? Not in the least. Doesn't matter a bit. That's the key, and that's where we started. We know that this was written by John. We know that John was an apostle. We know that his writings were considered authoritative from the very beginning. And so that is the most important thing, right? Because if we didn't know for a fact uh, that this was accepted by the early church as written by John, and if, we, if it didn't pass the smell test, what's the smell test? How would I know that this wasn't an inspired book if I found any type of what? If this was inconsistent, if it had error in it, if it didn't line up completely with the rest of our Bible, not just our New Testament, but even the prophecies that are talked about in the Old Testament, it doesn't pass a smell test, right? We would know, right? It's a forgery. Do we have any forgeries out there? We have tons of apocryphal books, right? You've got the small a and you've got the large a. Um, anybody name a couple of the New Testament apocryphal books? The Gospel of... Thomas is one. Who's the other one? I'll help you out. Judas. Was that, was that not appropriate for me to do that? <laughs> Judas was another one, right? The gospel of, well, you've got Mary. You've got all kinds of forgeries out there. And you've even got some Old Testament forgeries where the books are mentioned. Who, who can name it? John probably knows which one I'm talking about. The book of? There you go. And there's actually, there is a book by that name. Uh, and just as if, if you look at that book, and it, just as you would look at the apocryphal books that the Catholic Church has, you will find error in them. I went through every one of the Catholic books, and I pointed out all of the error. There's plenty of it in there. There's a whole different, It's funny you mention that. I read an article this week, and I can't go back and spend time on it, but it was interesting. <laughs> I probably shouldn't even bring it up. So the Mormons teach that Jesus came where uh, after he left Jerusalem? He came to South America. It is interesting, this week I was reading uh, about an Indian who claims that there was, he, they basically called him the white prophet or whatever, the white messiah basically, uh, who, who says that Jesus came here to South America. He hung around with the tribes and uh, that they even wore crosses back in the day. And I thought, that is very interesting. Did I go any further and study it? No. But you got to wonder where that myth came from or where that legend came from. It's not recorded in any of our inspired uh, um, scripture. But do we have any other religions 
that are very similar to Christianity but are not. Uh, they're, they're fakes. Uh, I'm thinking of one that actually came out about, it was after the uh, New Testament was written. I'm having a brain lapse since we're just going off the cuff here. Uh, their, their account that we have in Genesis, instead of having the ark, what did they have? Does anybody know? I know we talked about it. They had a, they had a, a cube, and the cube um, is what floated on the water, and they had a dome for uh, paradise, and they had all kinds of stuff. When you go back and look at it, it's simply a, it was a bad forgery of the original. Same thing as what the Mormons have done. And I haven't gone back and reviewed that account by the Indian, but if I would suspect if I could spend some time studying it, that's exactly what we would find. All right, so that gives you a real quick synopsis of the book of 1 John. All right, so let's go ahead and start to begin to look at this. And like I said, mentioning about Serenthus and some of those, I, I just mentioned that because if you go back and read some of these letters, and, you know, for example, Clement of Alexandria, I mean, to the, to the Clement to, Cor to the Corinthians, guys, that's a very interesting letter. I don't, claim that it's, I don't claim that it's inspired. I find it interesting in that it is a first century account. Uh, they didn't quote like we do. Like normally if I'm going to quote scripture, I tell somebody 1 John 1, 1, right? They didn't do that. They just quoted, they quoted the scripture and they just assigned it to whoever. Or sometimes they didn't even assign it. They just quoted it. And you go back and you can learn a lot by looking at those historical letters. They're not inspired, but they give you some information. Just as we learned about people writing about this guy causing trouble for the church. Uh, who was a Gnostic. And then all of a sudden we start to read letters and we're like, it's interesting that somebody else wrote about it because it looks like this may be what he's dealing with. I'm not for sure, but it looks like it. 1 John 1.1, 1, 1, that which was from the beginning, what does this sound like? Does this sound like any other writers that we have heard so far? John 1, 1 through 3, right? That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon, and our hands have handled? Is he fighting Gnosticism right here off the bat? That's what it sounds like. Of the word of life. Look at that. This sounds just like another author. Yeah, he doesn't start off and say, hey, my name is John. But if you've read the Gospel of John, does he start off pretty much the same way using some of the same vocabulary? Yeah, he does. That which was from the beginning. All right, go back and compare this to John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Here we've got the apostle who wrote the book of John, and here in 1 John we find the very same type of language. Okay? However, he's doing it for a slightly different purpose than we find in the Gospel. Here's the point. The Word, or the Lagos, manifested as Christ was from the beginning. If he was from the beginning, then he, he was what? He was God. That right there, that, if you're going to attack Gnosticism head on, how do you do it? You start off with a blanket statement before you begin to go back and prove it. He was literally God. And then people might be saying, well, how can you say that? Well, as an apostle, not only as an apostle, but as one who was with him all this time, he's a what? He's an eyewitness. So when I say that he's God in the flesh, I physically saw him. And for people who read the letter, people say, man, there's this guy named John. He wrote a letter and said that Jesus was God. And they would say, well, yeah, I know who John is. You can, he's still alive. You can go ask him this. You can go confirm it. He's still alive. It's eyewitness testimony. 
which we have heard, looked upon, and handled. All right, so you've got not just John. We could actually go back and look at all of the accounts with all of the apostles. Not only the apostles, those that were there in the crowds, they saw his miracles. Uh, the apostles had heard, they had seen, they had touched Jesus in his, I use this word here, incarnate, because that's what your big scholarly people are going to do. But what's that really mean? In his human form, right? They had touched him in his human form during his ministry. And this refutes docetism or Gnosticism. Right off the bat now, that's, that's exactly what he is doing. And we would use this, if I was an eyewitness account today, and someone told me that Jesus was not God, and they didn't believe that he was God in the flesh, I could say, I was with him. I literally saw the miracles that he did. I literally know for a fact that he rose from the dead. He was God in the flesh. And being an eyewitness, that would even be valid where? Court of law. I could go into a court of law and say, yeah, I literally saw that guy rise from the dead. That is eyewitness valid testimony, okay? That's exactly what he's doing. He's giving eyewitness testimony. He then uses this phrase, the word of life. Christ, the Lagos, the Word, John 1, 1, was the Word of life because He gave the words which result in eternal life. It's really that simple. We could go back and try to make it really difficult, and we could use a lot of big words that sound scholarly, but that's exactly... Why is He the Word of life? Well, He was the, he was the Word, the Lagos, and He gave the words of eternal life. 1 John 1, 2... Are we almost done already, guys? We're just getting started. 1 John 1, 2. For the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness, and show unto you that eternal life, which was with the Father, and was manifested unto us. Does this sound very similar to the very first verse? You guys ever... Do you guys remember when your parents used to beat you? I mean, when they used to instruct you as a child? Right? And they would tell it to you one way, and then they would tell it to you a different way. That's what John's doing. For the life was manifested. He'd already just talked about they saw him, they touched him. Right? Now he's, he's explaining it a different way. He was manifested. And we, not only the apostles, other people, but we apostles have seen it, and we bear witness. Keep the we with the seen and bearing witness, right? They're the ones that can bear witness because they were the ones that were there, right? They bear witness. And show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. This is a repeat of what he was saying. This is further emphasis in dealing with the problem of Gnosticism, which we even have first century writers saying, yeah, you had people causing all kinds of problems for the apostles, specifically dealing with Gnosticism. And one of the guys mentioned was actually known to have been a Judaizer, and they say he was the one that caused the problem uh, with circumcision. Is it accurate? I don't know, but to me it seems to line up that that's the, similar to the issue that he's dealing with, right? Whether it's that same guy or not, I don't know, but he's definitely dealing with the problem. So as an apostle, John had seen and had known Jesus as he lived on earth, and he was God in the flesh. And that's literally how he starts off the first epistle here. 
Because Jesus' life was revealed to the apostles, both privately and publicly, John had been privileged to obtain knowledge of him, and therefore he was able to bear eyewitness testimony regarding the Christ. When you look at, for example, the Gospel of John, or you look at 1 John, there would have been a number of those things that he wrote about where a lot of people, they could have read that and said, oh, I was there, I saw that, or, or I heard him speak. But there would be other parts of the gospel where they would say, I never knew that happened because they weren't there. But guess who was? The author was there. The apostles were there. They could write about this. And even if they weren't there, uh, they still could have wrote about it by inspiration. Now, we talk about the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. If they needed to know something uh, for an inspired letter or to speak by inspiration, it was revealed to them through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, okay? And we can look at different accounts where people gave inspired information even though they may not have been there. Uh, so, if you need to do... I've had people say, well, you know, the Holy Spirit... Let's go back to the Holy Spirit thing. Well, I'm inspired by the Holy Spirit. If that's the case, and I ask you to quote the book of uh, Acts chapter 2, you ought to be able to quote it. If you're, if you're inspired... Truly, that's what, what the word means. You should be able to quote Acts chapter 2, right? Do you think a prophet who said he was inspired could go out and quote whatever needed to be quoted if need be? Yeah, if you're speaking by inspiration. Uh, and we'll touch on this here in a second. So as the author of 1 John, and this is what Jerry alluded to earlier, this is probably the most important thing that you'd start when you start talking about the book of 1 John. As the author of 1 John, it's important to note that John met all the requirements of an apostle. And you have to say that because if he did not meet the requirements of an apostle, and he was not miraculously inspired via the Holy Spirit, then could I trust his writings? No. No, I couldn't. Just as I can't trust the writings of the guy down the street here who says he's a prophet. Or an apostle, actually. He says, he's an, he says he's an apostle. They have an apostle down there. How many of you guys want to go down there and read whatever his writings are and see if they're inspired? So let's touch on that for just a minute. I told you I'm going to take a couple sidetracks. Go ahead, Jerry. I'm glad Jerry mentioned that. So when the Pope speaks, what's it called? Ex cathedra, right? Uh, when he speaks from the seat, uh, did I quote that right? When he speaks from the seat, it's inspired, right? Here's what's interesting. How come if it's inspired, another Pope later will come back and change what was said previously? If it was inspired, it would be unchanging, right? We don't change, we don't go back and change any of Peter's inspired words or John's inspired words. So if the Pope speaks by inspiration, why do other Popes come back and change whatever was supposedly inspired in the first place? Oh, yeah. I'm glad you mentioned that. Uh, I saw a version of a Bible yesterday. Um, the original version is a version. I'm not going to mention what it is because I don't want anybody to go look it up. Uh, the original version is a version, actually, that is on... I have about five versions on my Bible software that I use. I use the King James. Uh, I use the ASV. 
I use the modern literal version. Uh, I use a couple of the very accurate, like the greens, literal translation. So I have about five, and then I have three different versions in Greek that I use. One of my versions that I use, they made a new version of it. It's called the Living, whatever the original title was. I'm not going to tell you what it is. And so I read it yesterday at lunch. Not all. I didn't read the entire New Testament at lunch, but I, I skipped through it on certain verses. And guys, it was total trash. It wasn't anything like the version that I use occasionally. Uh, if I'm trying to figure out if something's worded correctly or if I'm missing something, I check usually four or five versions. This new version wasn't anywhere close. Like I, I went and checked verses and I'm like, that's not even close. And guess who sent it to me? A member of the church. Member of the church. And it was interesting because I never heard of this guy. He sends me a Facebook message and said, hey, I'm not asking for money. This isn't, I'm not attempting to sell anything. I just want you to see this new wonderful translation. Yeah, guys, it wasn't wonderful. It was horrible. Yep. What does the what does the NIV contain inherently? Calvinism. So for anybody who doesn't know, of course, being a Catholic, I never read a Bible at all. But I did have a Bible. I got one when I graduated high school. Uh, I got a uh, the New American Standard. Not what you have. You've got the NASV, right? The NASB. There is the New American. It's the Catholic version. Anyways, it's, it's a basis off the Dewey Rames. Anyways, I got that. So I didn't care for the writing too much, but my first Bible, uh, when I was trying to figure out Christianity, was an NIV. I wish I would have kept it. I threw it away because I always read it out in the garage, and it was, it was full of dirt. Do you guys know why I quit using it? I used it as it was the only source I knew, and I used it until I decided to do a little bit of further research. So you get on the Internet, and when you start looking up Bible verses, what do they oftentimes give you? Which language? The original language, right? Well, I started looking up some of those, and I was like, that doesn't say that. And so then I started going back and doing a little more research, and then I found out that it was complete trash. And so I threw it away, and I got, I got a King James Version. And that's what I memorized, so that's what I use. But I don't think this is the best version for anybody watching this online. I would, if you want a version that a 12-year-old can understand that is actually more accurate than this, I correct this and I love it just because that's what I've memorized, and I correct it as I go, but get the modern literal version. Uh, I have one right here. We don't sell these, <laughs> obviously. I'm not making money on them, but if you're watching this, get a modern literal version. It renders the words correctly and accurately. There's no Calvinism in this. Uh, it will help you to understand it. And as Jerry said, people are trying to change. They're trying to change the Word of God. Well, we're talking about the fact that he was an apostle. He met the requirements. Now, you'll recall after Judas died, uh, they got together. They're going to pick another apostle, and we see the requirements. How come somebody's not cutting me off here? Let me finish. We, I'm going to finish this one little section here. We could go a lot longer, though. We see the requirements. Let's do them real quick. Acts 1, 21 through 22. Wherefore, of these men, which have accompanied with us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, 
beginning from the baptism of John unto that same day that he was taken up from us, must one be ordained, notice this, to be a witness, an eyewitness with us of his resurrection. If you're going to be an apostle, what do you have to see? The resurrected Christ. The guy down the street who says he's an apostle, guess what he didn't see? He never saw the resurrected Christ. Not only that, how did you receive the Holy Spirit or the gift of the Holy Spirit after you became a Christian? Who had to lay hands on you? An apostle. Could I walk down there and test to find out if this guy's an apostle? What do I have to ask him to do? Give me what? Give me a miraculous gift. When Simon saw that the laying on of the apostles' hands gave this miraculous power, he tried to buy it with money, right? I can go down there and ask him to give me a gift. Guess what else he could do? I could withstand him to his face and he could do what to me? What did Peter do to somebody? Blind me. He could blind me for a season, wouldn't he? Because he'd have that miraculous ability. If he can't do either one of those, he's not an apostle, right? And I know he's not because he didn't see the resurrected Christ. So an apostle had to have been personally chosen by Christ, and he had to have seen Christ to be resurrected. Now, I'm going to have to stop here. I wish we'd go a little bit further. Then you got people saying, well, Paul was never really an apostle. Paul didn't follow along with them. Jesus appointed Paul as his special apostle to the Gentiles. Galatians 1.1, Acts conversion accounts, 9, chapter 9, chapter 22, chapter 26. Listen to 1 Corinthians 9, 1 and 2. Now, I love Paul, when he, especially when he talks a little tongue-in-cheek. He says to the... Remember, this is the church in Corinth. Am I not an apostle? What's the answer to that? I'm an apostle, right? Let me stand here so I can read it without getting all excited. Am I not an apostle? Yes, you are. Am I not free? Yes, you are. Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Well, wait a minute. What's one of the requirements to be an apostle? You've got to see the resurrected Christ. Are ye not my work in the Lord? Now, you may be reading that and saying, I don't understand what he's talking about. If I be not an apostle unto others, yet doubtless I am to you for the seal of mine apostleship. What could the apostles do? They could give gifts. For the seal of mine apostleship are ye in the Lord. What did the church in Corinth abound in? Miraculous gifts. Who'd they get them from? Paul. What was Paul? An apostle. He had seen the risen Lord and he was chosen directly by him. The guy down the street who says he's an apostle, he should be able to come in here and give every one of us a miraculous gift. Every one of us. And yet we know that the, the miraculous was going to Cease. I, gotta, I have to cease. I can't go any further tonight. I'd like to keep talking. Uh, we still got, we're going to pick up here on verse 3. I'm sorry that's as far as we got. And I know we, as I always do, we went off a few times and talked about other stuff. But hopefully you've learned a little bit. We will continue on. Uh, it may take us a little while to get through 1 John. Uh, but we should have a better understanding when we get done. So I will hand this over to whoever's in charge.